Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. And today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Dylan Baur. Dylan is currently at the University of Alabama, Huntsville, and recently published Winning Lebanon, Youth Politics, Populism, and the Production of Sectarian Violence between 1920 and 1958, published by Cambridge University Press. And I just want to mention also that uh, the book will appear in a paperback edition coming in October. The book is very much a great and I would say a new study of uh, Lebanon, uh, basically from the end of a mandatory period up to the civil war of 1958, but relying on something different, youth and popular organizations. We will talk with the, our guest today about uh, the question of uh, studying youth and childhood up to a point, obviously, since he's focusing more on, uh, let's say, the teenagers' years of uh, individuals under review. Uh, but I'm, I'd be curious to ask him later about why in Middle Eastern studies we don't focus much on this particular category of people. But before all of this, Dylan, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Thanks for having me. So I guess I want to start with, with the usual question, see if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and more importantly, the origins of the book. Yeah. So as, as long as I can remember, I, I loved history, all different types of history. Uh, and I think my first engagement uh, with the Middle East uh, and Arab history in particular was in during my undergraduate years. I studied abroad to Greece and took a trip to uh, Cairo. Uh, and just sort of fell in love with the Arab world. I uh, was just sort of blown away by the scale, size, and all these these new things for me as, uh, you know, just largely growing up in the United States. Um, so at that point, I sort of had my, my focus, uh, the Middle East, and uh, I went to graduate school for Middle Eastern Studies, uh, focusing on history at the uh, University of Arizona. Uh, I fell into Lebanon, uh, like many, uh, as an outsider, found it as sort of a fascinating country, fascinating case, and not a, not too bad of a place to go visit for research. Uh, when I was doing dissertation fieldwork research, and uh, my dissertation was on the period in Lebanon from the mandate period, as you mentioned, the colonial period, all the way up to the start of the second or later civil war of 1975. Uh, and I was focusing on what I was referring to as the, at the time as militias and political parties. Um, but I realized, uh, looking into the archives, um, that these groups, especially in an earlier time period, saw themselves differently, not just as political parties and definitely not as militias. Uh, and the quote that really tipped me off to the origins of this book was the quote that I start the book with. It comes from one of the youth organizations that I work with called the Kata'eb. Uh, and the phrase in English is, with the youth by their, our side, there is no way uh, we won't succeed. Uh, and uh, that, really, that really spoke to me, that uh, in this group, this was actually um, a, uh, a beginning of a speech that this, this phrase was used, I think it was in 1940, uh, and that they were um, targeting young people as uh, potential members of their organizations, but talking about youth as the drivers of the future in ways that I've seen in other cases, whether, uh, for example, Mao Zedong talking about the youth uh, as the sort of bedrock of the uh, communist revolution in China. So it really got me thinking about that angle of youth. And at the time, I was working on dissertation field work. It was a little bit too late to kind of infuse the dissertation with that, uh, but it came to focus. And after that, I couldn't unsee the fact that these groups saw themselves, especially in earlier years, first and foremost as youth organizations or youth-centric organizations. So that ended up being the impetus for the book. Fantastic. And and then as a follow-up, I really want to ask you something about uh, the main argument of the book. And if you can give us a sense of uh, what is you're trying to achieve and also the sources that you have used. Yeah. So the main argument of the book, it's, it's fairly simple. Uh, I like starting with a simple argument and kind of building out from there as a writer. Uh, and uh, that argument is that these youth organizations that I'm focusing on, they matter. 
uh, to the history of modern Lebanon and that they matter to the history of the broader Arab world. Uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, sometimes these, these groups and the young people within them and young people more at large are written out of historical narratives. Uh, and that was largely the case until very recently in Lebanon. So my goal more, uh, more broadly is to write these historical actors into the historical narrative of Lebanon. But then the question is, okay, how do they matter? And that's where the, arg- uh, that's where the argument gets a little bit more uh, complex. I argue that they matter and that they were sort of the first organizations to adopt something that I refer to as populist politics or popular politics. Uh, they were the first sort of populist organizations uh, in Lebanon and in part of a broader movement in the Arab world during that time period. Uh, second, They were the first to sort of broaden the concept of who were young people. Uh, We can talk about that more later, but uh, young people was often thought of, especially earlier, the youth, the Shabab, as male, middle class, uh, and predominantly educated. Uh, And these organizations, they largely did change that conception and and broaden the base. Uh, And third, uh, I argue that these groups really matter uh, in what I refer to in the subtitle of the book, the production of sectarian violence. Um, these weren't the first organizations to be referred to by historians as sectarian, uh, and they weren't the first ones in Lebanon to practice sectarian politics. That's not what I'm arguing. But what is uh, distinct about 1958 and their participation is that youth, as an idea and a term, becomes linked to sectarianism. And that potentially young people are prone to sectarian violence. This was an accusation that came up in 1958 uh, in the war and something that I would argue you see in later episodes of uh, sectarian violence, as sort of described by journalists, historians and whatnot, uh, that young people are either prone to violence or prone to a specific type of violence. Um, so that is the, that is the general argument. And how I came to that argument uh, were uh, sources focusing on uh, these uh, youth-centric organizations. I focus on seven in total. I refer to the sources as their cultural production. So my basic research question is, or uh, yeah, what are the um, types of sources that can tell us something about the culture, organization, rituals of these uh, of these organizations. And uh, what we're really benefited by Lebanon in this time period is the diversity of print media and print culture. Uh, all of these organizations, besides one, had their own newspaper at one point. And I'm not reading these newspapers in, as an historian for, for events only or events that they're all in, uh, involved in, but how do they construct their identity, their culture, their ideal membership through these newspapers. Um, so that's the, that's the main source work. And that definitely kept me busy for most of the research, but uh, also interested in pictures, songs, ephemera, anything um, that uh, the, these organizations, at least that are still around today, will provide me that can tell me something about how, how they saw themselves and how they saw themselves uh, being young people driving uh, the future of their country. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here, and I have a series of questions. Very much, you know, we, we try to keep it short, but about a, sort of a methodological implant of your work, and also the terminology that you have used. But let me ask first about the question of youth. Youth matters, and uh, as we both know, you know, looking at sources from different contexts, uh, political parties in the Middle East cared about youth. They dedicated. Uh, articles, uh, created organizations, and also educational programs, uh, particularly through the 1920s uh, with the creation of the various mandates throughout, throughout the region. But it is only a recent addition to the list of topics that has been explored by historians of the Middle East. And I was wondering if you have an idea why childhood, youth have been neglected or underestimated. Yeah. That's a great question. Actually, one I wish I would have taken up in the book more so. Uh, You know, I I sort of say it is neglected, but don't really get into the why. So um, I I think the why is multifaceted. And I think it reflects trends that we see in other uh, areas and fields of history. Uh, I think one is first, um, especially in English language sources uh, and secondary literature, uh, the grand narratives, right? Uh, empiricism uh, as a, a sort of method of general history 
uh, up until, let's say, the cultural turn 1970s, 1980s. So accordingly, I feel like many of the studies that were, were on Lebanon were on the founders. Uh, Bishar Khouri, for example, Michel Shiha, Rihada Sur, these, these elites, uh, that they are the focus. And as I just mentioned, they're the men, right? The men that make, that make history. Uh, and I think that was largely, uh, especially when I think of some of the foundational but great works on Lebanon, the work of uh, Kamal Salibi, Philip Hitti, uh, Stephen Longridge Helmsley, who wrote a great book on the mandate. These were the individuals uh, that they focused on. Uh, and if young people or these organizations were talked about in those books, it was often pejorative that they didn't matter or that they were just sort of sectarian organizations uh, and that they were controlled by elites. And I think my book shows that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so that's definitely uh, definitely one aspect. I think also, and, and you kind of set it up well with, with, your, with your lead up to the question there, um, starting with sort of political parties and their overtures to youth, which of course my book is largely about, but if we start, uh, and I found this in the literature, if we start with that aspect, uh, we're focusing more on the political party and the youth aspect is sort of marginal. Um, uh, and hence, you know, there, there's a great book by uh, Michel Suleiman on political parties and political culture in Lebanon from the 60s. It's one of my favorite books from that era, but it focuses on the youth aspect as marginal and extension of these political parties. But like I mentioned with that quote in the beginning, if, if we look, if we're searching and asking different questions about this category, which is new category to study youth, uh, we might see different things than just the political party. I think also uh, a lot of historians and social scientists of Lebanon, the Middle East, uh, even if they're not Marxists themselves, I think they're inspired uh, by uh, Marxist methodology. And I think accordingly, uh, this idea that youth doesn't have that much of a relationship to capital, uh, the elites do, uh, especially in a place place like place like Lebanon. Um, so I think that's another reason as well. Uh, they're not seen as mattering in that uh, particular way. Um, but yeah, I think um, you know, with the, with the cultural turn and other things more recently, uh, there's this question of not only do women matter, of course, do children matter, of course, but do young people as a category as it's constructed at the time, do, do, do they matter? And there's some great works out there for those who are interested in the history of the Middle East that, that, that cover this. I'm thinking of uh, Nazan Maksudian's work on the Ottoman Empire. I'm thinking of Heidi Morrison's work uh, on Egypt. She also has a book coming out on Palestine, which is going to be about young people, and also the work of um, uh, Wilson Jacob and uh, Lucy Rizova on uh, Egypt during the mandate period. So it is, it is, it is a new, it is a new trend, and I'm I'm really happy to be a part of it. Great, fascinating, and you're right. I mean, it's a growing field, and I and I feel like uh, it's throughout. It's about time actually to start talking about these these categories that always been some sort of cornered. And they've been written out of, of the history of, the, of these emerging countries, even because then youth, uh, they became the adults of, of their future. And so it's important that we, we get to understand in which context they experienced those years and how they translated that experience into their political choices or social, economic and so forth. I have a couple of very quick questions. One is about the terminology I mentioned earlier. You're talking about uh, populism, and you define the organizations that you discuss in the book as populist. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, one aspect is sort of specific to literature on the region, and then one's a little bit more the theoretical. Um, so there is some great work on popular politics uh, in, in the modern Middle East. I'm thinking of the work of Jim Galvin, uh, or H. Bashkin. There's so many, so many great works. Uh, and they... Some of them discuss this aspect a little bit, um, but there's this Arabic term, shabia, which literally means popular. And it's what many of these organizations used when they talked about themselves. So that's the first reason I use this idea of popular organizations, populism, and populist, um, because the organizations themselves saw, uh, believed that they were popular and meaning that they were, that they were large uh, and that they were non-elite. Right. Uh, and I think more broadly, that leads into, uh, you know, a question of sort of what is populism to, to these to these organizations, uh, to different shapes and forms. Uh, they were anti-elite. Um, so uh, they were their anti-elite 
or some of their founders were new elites uh, or like sort of the new Afendia, uh, the new middle class sort of coming out of the mandate period. So, uh, but they weren't the individuals who held all of the wealth, power, uh, political power in the country. So populist in that sense, anti-elite. Uh, in different shapes and forms, they were all anti-imperial um, and anti-state. Um, so not uh, populism as not being something you particularly are, but what you define yourself against. And discursively, I think this plays the biggest role. When you look at these uh, organizations, newspapers, the rhetoric, uh, they are often talking about being uh, drawing their organization against these things. So we are not elites. We are Shabia. We are not, um, you know, we are not of of the state of the government we are popular we are of the people the shop um so that's that's how i use the term and and the concept uh in in the book and i'm also curious about the term sectarian uh, you're in your book you make a good point of staying away from this idea of uh, sectarian violence obviously you talk about it at some point but I was wondering, what is the role of sectarianism and violence in your narrative? Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you made that, that clarification. Uh, often when these, uh, and this goes back to your literature question, when these groups are talked about or young people are talked about, it is that they are sectarian or prone to violence, as if it's something that is inside of them, uh, that they are you know, breathing out or living out, something that is born in them. And I categorically disagree with that. I see um, sectarianism as a foundation. Uh, or um, uh, violence more broadly as, as I put in the title of my book, productive or production, generative. Okay, So if uh, sectarianism is an identity-based politics, of course, it can be structural. You know, how do laws, government structure, things dealing with citizenship, uh, Maya McDashi's new book is great here and sort of opening up some new questions about sectarianism. How does that shape the actors that I'm talking about? But also, how do they, through their populism, through their beliefs, through their practices, how do they shape this thing that we called identity-based politics or specifically in the Middle East? And, you know, I'm starting to get away from the term a little bit, even though it is in the title of my book, sectarianism. Um, so focusing on, on that aspect, but... Um, Violence, violence as well. It does play. It does play a role. I do not um, think that these groups should be or are well understood as being defined by violence. Um, but violence did play a role in their organizational cultures. I can talk about that a little bit later. And as 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 we know, in 1958, they do participate in a war, a war that is sometimes very much forgotten, but I find very important. So that is uh, the role that, you know, the way that I think about sectarianism, how these groups sort of played a role in producing it, um, but also their engagement in violence. And one last question before we start delving into the chapters. Great. Why 1958 as the end line of your book? And uh, can you speak a little bit about the chronology of your work? Yeah. So 1958 as an endpoint uh, was a actually a, a late sort of um, late. I, I came to that. I came to that late. As I was mentioning, my dissertation went into the 1970s, um, but I decided to cap the book at 58 for a couple reasons. Uh, one is literature based. Um, there is a lot on the 1958 war, but not much that actually puts it in broader perspective of events and time periods that come before it. Um, so I wanted 58 to be the culmination, but looking backward. Um Second, there's uh, in terms of in terms of the literature aspects, there's just a, a lot of work on the Lebanese Civil War of 1975 to 1990. I, of course, I still think that there's new things to explore there, and actually, my next book is going to be dealing uh, with uh, the 60s and the 1970s in Lebanon and and, and elsewhere. But um, I thought that it, it was important to kind of focus on 58 for its own right. Cause as I mentioned earlier, it's forgotten. So, so often, uh, as something that was sort of a blip in the radar, but I see it as much more sort of generative. Um, and so that's, um, that's why the book ends in 19, 19, 1958. Uh, and in terms of the chronology, um, so a lot of these organizations, 
uh, and groups, these youth-centric groups uh, that were talking about young people, saw themselves as drivers of the future. They were founded um, largely around the First World War, uh, either a little bit before or after, uh, but also largely during the French Mandate period. Uh, the French colonial period. So that's where I start uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, where um, the majority of these groups, I think at least five of them, maybe four, um, but, uh, but uh, you know, a mass majority of them came of age, as organizationally speaking, under the French mandate period. So that's, that's the focus. And, and the, the, the French left in around 1943. Uh, that was the official date, but up until 19, 1946. Uh, and then I focus on the early independence period. And this is a very important period for these groups because this is sort of where, depending on the organization, they're transforming from uh, seeing themselves as predominantly youth social movements to potentially, with the independence of their country, participating in parliamentary politics and party politics and becoming more political parties. Uh, and the, yeah, that all comes to a head in, in, in 19, 1958. And uh, I think we'll talk more about that later. So let me start uh, with a question related to chapter one, which I want to mention to the listeners and the readers of the book. This is a foundational chapter, one that has to be read carefully because you provide the details of the organizations under review. And I was wondering if you can give us a brief sense uh, about the organizations and also perhaps about the people that belong to the organization. Yeah, it is. It is foundational, and it's 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 pretty long too. Um, but I do think it. I think it's an important one. I think it sets uh, it sets the stage, of course, organizationally speaking. But um, I do have to say, I, I like the the choice I made. So the choice that I made was basically to focus on a different aspect that connects all of these groups, but use or take one group to explore that. So, for example, the Lebanese People's Party, uh, uh, which eventually uh, was referred to as the uh, or became the Lebanese Communist Party, uh, they were the first organization founded uh, early 1920s. And for that organization, I focus on populism. Like what role did they play in uh, uh, creating this new sort of aspect of popular politics that I refer to as pop populism or, or Shabia, and then sort of its afterlife from there. And I kind of follow that organization to organization. I won't talk uh, talk about all of them, but um, you know, how did these groups? Um, no, how did young people learn about these groups? Okay, so I focus on the newspapers, and I use one group uh, to focus on the newspapers. Uh, how did they join the organization? Which I think is really, really important in sort of belonging and community belonging. So I use one organization to take that up. And it goes on and on through talking about the popular culture of the organizations when they were founded, um, sort of the institutional mechanisms of the organization, Funding, which I think is important. I'm not an economic historian myself. Uh, I'm more, uh, I, I more see myself as a cultural historian, but the money does matter uh, to, to a certain extent. And uh, also talk about networks because these organizations weren't insular. They had relationships to different um, uh, religious, charitable, and social organizations, but sometimes universities as well. So uh, I do that in all, all seven, seven, seven groups. So we learn a little bit about each organization, their founders, their ideas, the people that are in them, but also certain aspects that really unite all the organizations. All of them had a popular culture. All of them had chants. All of them had uh, rituals, for example. All of them had membership, uh, you know, membership rituals. So I take a particular group to discuss that. Now, in terms of who were in these organizations, uh, especially in the early days? Like, who are the young people that are in it? This is something I actually didn't mention earlier. I think sometimes uh, scholars didn't focus on youth uh, until until recently. Is like, how do we how do we find them the source work, right? Um, so I, I think there are some organizations that in their newspaper dedicate more time information to their young members. So I can write more about uh, those individuals in certain cases. In others, it's a little bit more demographic, uh, you know, sort of where they're from, what age, what professions, uh, et cetera, less sort of individual stories. Um, but um, generally speaking, especially in the early days, uh, young people in these organizations uh, were, like you mentioned earlier, teenage, uh, college age, university age, around, around that age, um, but um, specifically middle class. University students, high school students, working class students, uh, well, not always working class students, working class individuals, but also early, uh, almost exclusively male. 
and you know, to be young in the French mandate period, at least as described by these groups, was sort of t- to be male or to, to to fit the sort of masculine mold of what a young, strong, fit, but also sound of mind youth would be like. So that's largely how the organization starts and, and the types of young people that were in them. Uh, and then it, it sort of moves on from there. Now, some organizations are more diverse in terms of their makeup, in terms of where they pull individuals from, uh, in terms of sect, region, et cetera, uh, some less so. And that, and that really varies, varies group to group. Um, but um, yeah. You made me think about something which you don't talk about much in the book, but it, it kind of like uh, stopped buzzing me. Uh, where did they get the money from? I mean, obviously, this organization needed some sort of uh, income in order to survive. Did uh, I mean, did these young individuals pay the fee? Uh, there was money coming from outside sources? Yeah. So there were membership fees. Uh, and for some organizations, they were actually fairly steep for the 1940s. I think, again, sort of reflecting that they thought their middle class members could, could pay this or, or had parents that could pay it. Um, but um, beyond that, beyond what they drew from the organization, um, the leaders of these organizations um, would, 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 would run fundraising throughout their communities, for sure. Um, some of these leaders had more money or came from money. So uh, Kamal Jumblat, the leader of the Progressive Socialist Party, which was always a political party or thought about as a social movement or political party, but with this concept of young people front and center, uh, he had his own funds, right? So he was largely funding the organization and taking donations from Druze community members as well. Uh, one aspect I talk about in the first chapter is how um, these organizations um, pulled uh, membership and funds from uh, different parts of the world, from the Lebanese diaspora, uh, students of, of Lebanon, the Arab world, Bilad Hashem, uh, more broadly speaking, will know that uh, the Lebanese, Syrian, Arabs from the Eastern Mediterranean, more broadly, were very diasporic people in the early 20th century, uh, given what happens during the First World War and other factors. Um, so these organizations pulled uh, money from that as well. For example, uh, an organization I focus on called the Vanguard Organization, uh, which was a predominantly Shia organization, uh, pooled rich donors from West Africa, uh, Shia migrants who had went to West Africa to make fortunes there during actually sort of an economic boom in West Africa in the 1940s uh, and brought that money back. Um, so largely that's where the money starts from, but also it sort of grows as the organization grows. The more membership they have, the more potential places they can pull money from. Fascinating. Uh, I'm curious about, uh, you know, moving to chapter two, you talk about space and uh, and you make a very good point about the question of public sphere, something that is becoming central in many studies related to the history of the Middle East. Uh, just recently, I interviewed for, for the network uh, um, Bedros Dermatosian uh, on his new book about the massacres of Adana and how public sphere was central in order to develop this concept of violence. But you're also going a step forward and you talk about a specific uh, uh, space, which is the headquarters of the organization. And I, will wonder, I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about the role of the headquarters for the organizations and also for the politics of these uh, people. Yeah. So that chapter, I think, is where I get sort of the most theoretical. Uh, and I am talking about space, and it sounds like Pedros and myself have a similar sort of understanding of sort of the role the public sphere plays in these organizations, but also uh, uh, how the state can use violence in the public sphere, these types of things. But in terms of the headquarters, I actually um, thought I'd, I'd pull from a particular page here. Um, so in that second chapter, uh, first of all, the, the, the headquarters, I, I talked first about how different organizations call their headquarters different things. Uh, one that is very interesting is that three of the organizations refer to their headquarters as the Beit, El Beit, the house, the home. Uh, this understanding of, um, you know, was a, I write here, was a means to replace the actual family of the youth with the family of the club and spank, sanctify a space for that family. But other organizations use different te- techno- uh, terminology, Marquez, Center, Maqar, uh, these, these different types of, types of words. And what I write here is, regardless of the terminology, 
The headquarters was the space in which a host of events were held and spatial practices were performed. So the headquarters was a place first where young people would go to for a bevy of different events, not just lectures, political meetings, but sports parties, cultural events, dancing events, music events. So it became for the organization, I argue, a place where uh, the organization could cultivate both youth belonging, but also diversion and fun. You know, this concept largely coming about in the 20th century that your youth was to be a a, a fun period, even if it was controlled. So uh, a place of sort of uh, fun and and politics. But in terms of spatial practices, I think this is this is very interesting. Like spa- spatially, where the headquarters is in the city, the routes that young people take to get to them, but also the types of things they do in them. For example, these sports parties, physical training, uh, labels the headquarter as a space where you not only meet to think but to act. And I think that becomes very important in the context of uh, earlier sort of episodes of protests, uh, popular mobilization, but also violence, where uh, many people within the organization think of that space uh, as sort of a launching pad for agitation of different sorts. That that would that would require a, a sort of a a different podcast just to keep talking about the importance of space and also the question of a headquarters. Unfortunately, we have to move forward, but I personally found it very very interesting because it also relates to some elements of comparative history and to see how similar organizations developed in the Middle East around the same time and sort of a different understanding, but also very similar in many ways they had about this particular concept. But there's one thing, uh, I don't want to say it's unique to Lebanon, but I think it's very important given the structure of the Lebanese state. So I was wondering, what was the relationship between these organizations and the Lebanese state? Yeah, so it varies group to group, uh, depending on their, their, their ideology, which I haven't talked much about ideology yet. I mean, some of these organizations are Lebanese nationalist, uh, some are, some are communist, some are, uh, Arab nationalist, some are different varieties of, of Lebanese nationalists, sort of the official Christian nationalism was kind of sort of enshrined, uh, in, um, the constitution of the country and things along those lines, the government of the country and others more sort of like, okay, thinking of their group within uh, the Lebanese state, uh, for example, minorities like Shia minorities. Um, So it depends uh, in terms of its relationship to the state, if that ideology and if that version of populism is hostile to the state. Um, So definitely in particular time periods, uh, certain organizations uh, were not only, um, uh, uh, friends of the state, but like made up state government in terms of uh, had some seats in parliament, things like that into the 19, 1950s. But I do, do want to stress, because I think this is really important and something that's forgotten about particular organizations, is all seven of these organizations in different time periods were hostile to the state, clashed with the state, and actually were met by violence uh, to the state, both the colonial state, but the early independent state as well. And I talk about this a lot in chapter two as well. Um, Many of these organizations, they have what they refer to as their mamudia them, uh, their blood baptism, and different organizations talk about this. It's their origin story uh, for their organization, and it often starts with actually a violent encounter with the state, whether uh, security forces of the early independent state, that's the case with the Progressive Socialist Party, or uh, colonial forces, French soldiers with the Kata'ab, for example. Um, but these... Um, these events of their relationship uh, to the state uh, and these violent encounters are really uh, essential to the ways that they sort of see themselves. So uh, although some groups would seem as more kind of uh, friends of the Lebanese state and the official drivers of of politics more so than than others, uh, I think generally speaking, it's important to remember that they were all hostile to the state, populist, and anti-state uh, at, at certain aspects of their, their history. I also want to ask something about, uh, uh, you know, membership, this time not in terms of fees. Uh, in your following chapter, you're talking about uh, the fact that in order to win Lebanon, and I want to ask about this idea of winning Lebanon, but later, okay, men were not alone. Uh, they were not just 
obviously also the only category that the, the visa organization should have tried to co-opt. And so I was wondering, how did these organizations try to broaden their base, both in terms of gender and geography? Yeah, uh, this is my favorite chapter to write. Uh, I, I love this chapter uh, so much because I think it's 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 something that is missed about about these organizations when they're just referred to as sectarian, masculine, or ultranational. Uh, that their memberships, especially in the 1940s into 1950s, were quite broad um, because I think they realized, like your question sort of points out, that the city, the capital, was not enough. Like if they were actually going to be drivers of the country and win Lebanon. Why not incorporate new types of people and incorporate new types of young people into the conception of what makes a youth organization a youth organization? So first, many of these organizations made overtures to uh, working class young people, but also children as well. They had sort of philanthropy efforts uh, to bring sort of children into the ranks of the organization. Um, and uh, also you mentioned you mentioned gender and the aspect of women. Uh, this is extremely important. In all different shapes and forms, these organizations become more diverse. Uh, they are less male-dominated, uh, uh, but become more... Um, have more female membership and conceive... Uh, the organizations do, and young people within them, as women as part of the drivers of the future, uh, but also women sort of uh, demanding and forcing that right. It's like, if if you're going to say that you are a organization that represents Lebanon, like, where are we? Why aren't, why aren't we here? Uh, so there's a big sort of conversation, a public conversation about that in the 40s and 50s. But uh, all these organizations in different ways uh, bring uh, women, women in. Um, into the countryside as well. I mentioned working class and, and poor, but into, into different regions as well. You mentioned headquarters. Headquarters are fascinating. Branch offices are fascinating as well. And these organizations in all different ways set up branch offices in different parts of the country. Um, and I'll explain one aspect of that, that later. The, uh, the, the, the final, and I kind of mentioned this earlier with following the money and funding, is the diaspora. Uh, many of these organizations uh, uh, create branches and uh, create connections with uh, the Lebanese diaspora, both in the Americas, uh, later in Australia and Europe, um, but also Africa. And there's a section of this chapter where I kind of follow uh, the Katab and other organizations going uh, going to Africa. And I just learned recently that a group I actually didn't focus on too much in terms of its diasporic efforts, the Lebanese Communist Party actually has uh, pretty active branches uh, in different parts of in different parts of the world. So many of these organizations were uh, di diasporic uh, and, and broadening the base that way. The diasporic youth were a part of what they saw as their, their organization. Um, but I don't want to mislead here and act like the, the, this means that these organizations are one uh, 100% cosmopolitan, diverse, diverse, and perhaps, quote unquote, good drivers uh, of change. Um, because, for example, where a organization uh, puts a branch office in the country depends on where their membership is. And some of these organizations were predominantly either Christian or Shia Muslim or whatnot. Um, so they set up their branches in parts of the country that reflect that. Uh, as it relates to women, uh, in many cases, uh, these organizations, yes, did bring women into it. Uh, but the idea, uh, especially early, was to be a woman in this party was actually to act like a male, uh, you know, to, to, to be a part of the masculine, masculine nation. Or if women were to have, quote unquote, feminine features, whatever those might be, feminine interests, that those were separate from the political missions of, of the, or the organization. So um, it's not, it's not always rosy in the sense of this incorporation, but the base does get, get broader, which I think is significant uh, to not see these groups just as sectarian parties, but at the same time, contradictions do abound as they get bigger. How do they reconcile the fact that they're predominantly a Christian masculine party, for example, the Kataeb, with the fact that they do get bigger, they do get more women and they do become more regionally diverse? Before talking about the last two chapters, which are very much focusing on uh, 1958, actually, I wanted to ask you about this concept of uh, sectarian identity. You make a point in the book saying that 
well, their religious identity was important, but was not the main identity marker within the organization. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about it, because often we have this idea looking at Lebanon that is uh, obviously religiously divided, and that translates into the fact that every single group organization or uh, even maybe sport uh, club is then divided according to religious line. Mm-hmm. Was that the case? It wasn't. Um, so the majority of these organizations actually were, were quite diverse, um, uh, and they were anti-sectarian from the start. Uh, so the, the Lebanese, uh, um, the Lebanese People's Party, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, the Progressive Socialist Party to start, and the Arab Nationalist Youth, which is an organization I haven't brought up yet, were all very diverse sectarian in their, um, in their uh, membership. And this was actually a part of their populism, uh, that they weren't just anti-state and anti-elite, they were anti-sectarian. So I think that's very important. But there are three organizations, the Kata'eb, the Najade, and uh, the Vanguard organization, Tala'a, um, that were had sectarian membership. So how did they make sense that they made they make sense of this? Their all of their versions of Lebanese nationalism saw um, their sect as sort of building up what made a diverse cosmopolitan Lebanon. That's how they talked about it, at least. Uh, you know, in in their in their pamphlets, for example, uh, you know, the the Kataeb party will be talking about a Lebanese nationalism that brings all groups together uh, while maintaining the rights of uh, minority Christians. Um, Shia in Lebanon through uh, the Vanguard organization, they talk about, you know, why can't Shia are so marginalized? Why can't we be a part of this national ethos? And in many ways. Um, they might not have been anti-sectarian, but they don't talk about sectarian uh, identity that much. And I, I think that's important. You can make an argument that's an, it's assumed because they know their membership, but it wasn't central to the construction of their identity. What was more uh, important were these concepts of youth, that they were young, driving the future, middle class identity, um, belonging, um, uh, these types of things. Um, so you don't, for example... In many of the membership cards for organizations like that, they don't ask their members what sect they are. And many of these organizations did have minorities uh, that were either, you know, different from the the main majority. Uh, Again, I think it's fair to say you're not asking them their sect because you already know it. But the fact that they don't ask it themselves, I think, is is an important historical observation, that they don't see it as essential to um, projecting uh, uh, their their identity. I'm pretty sure that you will run into some criticism about this, maybe some scholars, perhaps mostly, you know, uh, from a different generation would uh, criticize your views about uh, the use of uh, sectarianism. But I want to move uh, into the question of 1958. Can you give us a sense, a little bit, perhaps a little bit of a context about how the civil war came to be? And what was the role, the initial role of the organizations within the context of a civil war? Yeah. So uh, this war in 1958, uh, it's often talked about uh, if we look at articles by, for example, um, Fawaz Jorjiz, who wrote a great article on 1958. It's often thought about what were the internal factors, what were the external factors. Uh, and internally, it largely dealt with um uh, politics and official politics. Like I said, at this point by 1958, these organizations were largely a part of the political system. So um, when there's a particular electoral law that is that is brought on by President Camille Chamon in, I think, 1956, some organizations are upset about this gerrymandering because they think it's going to hurt their ability to participate in politics. Um, so there's protests uh, in Lebanon leading up from 1956, 1957, when the parliamentary elections are, all the way to 1958. And these organizations are the forefront of those protests. On the other side is the external factors. We know this is the um, the early Cold War period, you know, which I which I talk about in the book, uh, and how these groups were divided on a simple simple question: uh, Are are you Nasserist or not? Do you actually uh, do you follow um, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the ideology of Arab nationalism? Or are you afraid that that is going to hurt? Lebanon. And that really divided the country, um, but also divided these organizations uh, as well in in very interesting ways. 
Um, so the spark of the, you know, there were already protests. There was already sort of anger at President Camille Chamon, given uh, his his gerrymandering. And the thought was that he was going to try and pack the parliament with loyalists so he could change the constitution to give him another term uh, as president. So uh, many people uh, were angered about that aspect. But actually, the, uh, before the actual spark, but the actual spark was in uh, it was in May 1958 when a journalist, an anti-Shamon journalist, uh, Nasib Mutni, was 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 assassinated, was killed on the streets of Beirut, uh, and most of the organizations were you know came out immediately and said this is this is awful. Uh, but what happened from there is what really starts to divide uh, these organizations. You mentioned uh, obviously the agency of uh, President Shamon. Um, which was uh, he was at the center of a 1958 conflict, we may say. And so I was wondering, how did the various organizations react to those events? And also, how did the sectarian identity click? I mean, the sense from your book is that at some point from this, let's say, anti-sectarian attitude, we see a switch where sectarian identity became important. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it does become really important uh, in this in this moment. So um, in in 1958, um, the major the mass majority of the groups were sort of uh, against this this gerrymandering and were were against Shamon. But very interestingly, so um, uh, the Kataeb, uh, which you know you can make the argument they were the most sectarian of these of these organizations, even if they espoused anti-sectarianism, uh, they did not like Camille Chamon. Uh, they did not like him through the through the 1950s up until 1950, 1958. They actually didn't uh, very much support him. Um, but what happened as the conflict started, and this was the big dividing dividing point, some organizations were were very uh, afraid that they're either privilege within the Lebanese system or Lebanon as an independent country was going to be swallowed up by the United Arab Republic. Uh, and the two organizations that end up siding with President Kamel Shimon, uh, actually pretty late, and I make this point in the book, and I think it's a very important point, the Qatab did not join uh, alongside uh, Pierre, uh, uh, sorry, alongside Kamel Shimon and the government until it was clear that the United Nations was not going to intervene to save Lebanon, because this was an issue that Camille Charmon brought to the United Nations. The United Arab Republic is intervening in our country. Um, when the UN report came back uh, that basically said this is an internal issue, we're not going to do anything, that is when uh, the Qatab really moved towards uh, President Shimon. I think that I think that that's important. It's not to say that the organization wasn't sectarianism, sectarian, but in that moment, they weren't immediately, like you used the phrase, clicked by sectarianism. That's something that actually grew out uh, from this event. The Syrian Social Nationalist Party was very, very interesting. Uh, their organization actually, that was never uh, very much aligned with the government, the state, Shamon, or the Kata'ab, align with um, these forces at this point, and the argument is made, and I, I make the argument as well, is that they were very anti-Nasserist. Uh, they saw uh, they saw Nasserism uh, as sort of something that um, was trying to co-opt Syrian nationalism, uh, and, the, and and they weren't for that. So that was the reason they joined along with Shimon. All the others uh, believed that uh, Shimon's dealings. Uh, were predominantly uh, affecting their organizations, but also they were either um, they were either definitely uh, pro nasserist um, Not all of them were for the creation of, say, United Arab Republic that would include Lebanon. Uh, but some, like say the Lebanese Communist Party, weren't specifically uh, nasserist Let's let's remember that Nasser, uh, you know, didn't really like communists that much. So, but um, they saw sort of the, and this is what I talk about, I think I call that phrase like riding the web revolutionary wave. They see that sort of that version of populism at that point that is gaining traction is at least okay with Nasserism. Uh, so the Lebanese Communist Party does sort of come over to that side as well and against the state. There is one particular organization, a group that you talk about and uh, it looks like was marginalized uh, during the conflict, and that's the Shia. And I was wondering if you can speak about them a little bit more. Yeah, so 
Definitely, definitely so. Uh, the, 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 there's there is very very literature uh, on the role that the Shia played and Shia notables played uh, in in 19, 19, 1958. And one of the source issues here is that the only organization that did not have a newspaper that I can follow to the 1950s is the Vanguard organization, uh, Talai, this, this organization, which was pr- predominantly Shia. So unfortunately, I can't follow Shia youth and their actions and participation in the 1958 war in the way that I can do for other demographics or organizations, which of course is not something that I'm particularly fond of, but you know, we're bound by our sources as historians. But what I can do, and I do uh, in the chapter, is talk about uh, the leaders of those organizations and sort of what how their roles played out in uh, the conflict. So one individual I follow, his name is uh, Rashid Beydoun. He was the founder of uh, the Vanguard organization. And he was actually, um, excuse me, he had a seat in parliament uh, under uh, these new uh, 1957 elections. So he didn't particularly think the elections were rigged because they gave him a seat. But he was the uh, defense minister uh, of, um, he was the defense minister of Lebanon in 1950, and I, and I write about this uh, a little bit in the sense that um, he actually resigns from the position because he thinks that this insurrection has become too big, uh, and he doesn't think he can actually help defend the country, so he resigns uh, from that position. So uh, in a position of power to start, but marginal towards uh, the the end. Uh, you also have uh, uh, Kamal Murue, uh, uh, who was a... Um, he was another founder of the Vanguard organization. He had the newspaper El Hayat uh, at the time. And um, he was like the Syrian Social Nationalist Party was extremely anti nasserist So in, in, that, in, in that way, um, he he didn't support the government, he didn't support Shamon, but was almost backed into a corner because the, the power and momentum of Nasserism, he was not for, for country, uh, for, for, for the country, for Lebanon. Um, but yeah, gen- generally speaking, um, they played a role. I try and write that role in, in terms of these leaders, but yes, organizationally speaking, as uh, the sources aren't there, I can't follow them as closely as I'd like. Moving towards the end of the book, I was fascinated by the fact that you talk about how 1958 is remembered. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about it, but also if you can tell us why is it important to look at how that particular event has been memorialized in time? And secondly, uh, just as a spin-off, I wanted to ask you about what happened to that youth, what happened to those individuals that were young in 1958? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, First off, in terms of uh, this, uh, how we, um, in terms of how 1958 is remembered uh, or not remembered, uh, it, uh, it, I, I want to start with the fact this is a conflict uh, that lasted um, from basically March 1958 to um, October 1958. The country was in full insurrection. I mean, there were parts of the country that were uh, were calling for su- succession. Uh, it was it, when you it, four thousand individuals perished during this conflict. U.S. Marines intervened. Um, given the issues with the United Arab Republic, uh, Kamil Shamon uh, deported hundreds and thousands of Syrians uh, and Palestinians that were living uh, in Lebanon at this time. So. Um, it is a, is a conflict that I don't see as a blip, only if you see it in comparison to 1975 to 1990. Um, but in and of itself, it was a very significant event, but it is not remembered uh, given uh, uh, the war that happens thereafter. It's seen as maybe a prelude to the Civil War of 1975 to 1990, a war that was unresolved, but always sort of spoken about in the specter of 1975 to, to, to 1990. And that's another reason that I was I, I believed and uh, still do that it was important to kind of end this book and focus on 1958 in its own right, uh, to give it its own sort of interpretation uh, without the specter of the Lebanese Civil War uh, thereafter. Um, but uh, other reasons that I uh, sort of culminate and focus uh, on 1958 
is um, this was a revolutionary time period. Uh, you know, early world Cold War period, you have revolutions in Cuba, Algeria, Lebanon, and many of the young people that were a part of these organizations who uh, were anti-government saw themselves as part of a bigger nationalist, potentially leftist constellation of revolution. So I think it's another reason to, 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 to end in 1958. I feel like Lebanon is often seen as sort of exceptional, its own thing, separate. In the end, this book is about Lebanon, uh, but I do like sort of drawing the connections between the broader broader context. In terms of what happens to these young people, I thought I would read again uh, really quickly because um, 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 in terms of what happens to, to these young, young people, um, so some of these, these names are actually, uh, you know, b- become household names. Bashir and Amin Jamal, for example, Walid Jumblat, the son of Kamal Jumblat, George Howie, who becomes a, the, the founder of the Lebanese Communist Party. All of these individuals played a role in 1958. They, they participate and they talk about it. And this is what um, Samir Khalif calls their initiation into militancy. And then this is this is where uh, I, I write here. At 20 years or younger, they participated alongside their fathers, brothers, and sisters in these rituals of bla- uh, violence, their blood baptism, so to speak. Furthermore, the type of language they practiced to make sense of the conflict, our just struggles versus the punks and their abomination, and how they performed performed their violence, rituals of youth culture, and where they engaged in conflict uh, is observable in future moments of sectarian violence in Lebanon uh, and beyond during the 20th and 21st centuries. So to to summarize there, uh, that it was many of them, their initiation into uh, what they would do to, to win Lebanon, like how they would fight to sort of win Lebanon in the image of their organization. But also many of the traits of, that, uh, of this conflict in 1958, and this is another reason I think 1958 is so important, uh, that they sort of breathed out into life uh, become ways that we can understand the later civil war and, 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 and themes and ideas and concepts uh, that come up in the later civil war, whether how it was lived or how it's talked about thereafter. So in the end, I must ask, was Lebanon one? I love that question, I, and I get it a lot. Uh, you know, obviously, there's the the Jaron Forna of winning to kind of keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it open. Um, but um, in ways, it was uh, by certain organizations. So um, sometimes people, you, you know, I, I refer to a group like the Kataeb as non-elite and sort of popular, and they're like. Dylan, this is this is a household name. Well, this book is the story by which they become a household name. Uh, they they did sort of win Lebanon in their image at least up until uh, the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, the Progressive Socialist Party is in the mix up until today. The uh, the Kataeb, uh, they're now both oppositional parties um, uh, in the in in the parliament, and um, uh, they both have seats in parliament. Um, but they they. They want a part of Lebanon, a section of Lebanon, if you will. So in, in some ways, some organizations did, others others, as others didn't. For example, some of these organizations don't even exist anymore. The Najadde organization, uh, the, um, the Arab Nationalist Youth Organization. Uh, but in other ways, um, they didn't. Uh, and I think this is one of the conundrums that I'm working through in this book. Um, these organizations are getting bigger. They're, 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 they're claiming that they re- represent the bigger national politique, but in the end, do they really? Or are they, you know, or do they have certain types of membership basises, whether male, whether sectarian, that they fall, uh, they fall under? So I think part of it is that, yes, certain agents within uh, in, in, in the country of Lebanon successfully won portions of it and changed the country accordingly. Others were sort of subsumed by the structure of sectarianism that we all, the story we all know too well. So it's it's mixed uh, as most uh, historical records are. One last question. Is there anything that we didn't talk about, but you feel you want to mention about your book? I don't, I don't particularly uh, think about, well, I, I don't think so, but I guess... Um, I guess, I guess, I guess one thing uh, is the uh, the sports parties. Uh, I think that the, the the we didn't talk about that too much, um, but um, we talked about it a little bit with the headquarters. And you said you you were interested in this uh, phenomenon a little bit more. Um, when we think about parties, not political parties, but gatherings, we think of concerts. We might think of music festivals. 
These organizations had parties where sports were played and thousands of individuals came to them. And I think it's it's something that we, you know, that we like. And they literally called them uh, Haflat Riyadhiya, uh, you know, sports parties, parties for sports. Uh, and this is something, I mean, obviously we do have with the professionalization of sports, uh, we have national sports events, we have big stadiums, et cetera. But that what we think about as a political party would have these large parties dedicated to youth sports, I think is very interesting. And I think it also, again, um, uh, helps us complicate a little bit more this concept of the political party. These organizations aren't just political parties. And I think something like a, 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 a sports party or just a dedication of a day to different sporting events, whether ping pong, wrestling, basketball, uh, really helps us kind of understand these organizations as more diverse and not just sectarian political parties. This was uh, Dylan Baum, author of Winning Lebanon, Youth Politics, Populism, and the Production of Sectarian Violence, 1920 to 1958, published by Cambridge University Press, and with an upcoming uh, paperback edition uh, in October. Dylan, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto.